Resilience. It's a word that holds a lot of meaning in cybersecurity. But what does it mean for the self? And what does it mean for defenders and cyber professionals to be resilient? And what are the sources they can draw from when the going gets tough? I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Today, my guest is Nick Mullen, Information Security Governance Manager at Mutual of Omaha. Nick and I met over LinkedIn and a mutual affiliation with the lessons of mental resilience offered by Stoic philosophy. I wanted to talk with Nick about how his unconventional path into cyber, coupled with 2,000-year-old philosophy, has equipped him for a career in InfoSec. Nick Mullen, welcome to First Watch. George, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. It's great to finally meet, I guess, in a way. We've been going back and forth for quite some time. Yeah. I, I, we, we had one other, we've had another brief phone conversation, but for the most part, it's just been kind of uh, through messages on LinkedIn. That's true. We're actually real people um, and we're not just tiny still avatars. No, this is not a, uh, I am not a chat bot that is <laughs> just feeding you lines. Um, so why don't we start with your journey into cyber? Uh, as I understand it, we went back and forth. You don't come from the traditional IT background per se. Um, and I think that lends itself to a, a different perspective. Yeah, I, uh, I was a late bloomer in IT, um, even later in security. Um, I grew up in a pretty low income area. I didn't have a lot of exposure to technology. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't even, I didn't get my first PC until I was 20. Uh, so I, uh, I moved away from that area, kind of the first opportunity I got and, uh, and enrolled in, in college. Uh, but I, I couldn't kind of stick around there. I didn't have enough money in student loans to pay for it. Uh, I got in the hole a few thousand dollars uh, and they wouldn't let me continue to enroll in classes. So uh, from there, I just kind of entered the workforce. Um, I sold cars for a while, but um, uh, apparently that wasn't uh, painful enough for me. So I became a bill collector for a while. Nice. Uh, so my, my joke is always that uh, I'm a law degree away from having held the three most hated professions in the country. Uh, so <laughs> maybe I'll get there someday, but uh, no, in all seriousness, the uh, the collection agency offered me a lot of opportunity. Um, I did some uh, some training and development time there, uh, and that was also kind of my first real break into leadership. Uh, so I, I was in a leadership role there for a few years, and then I kind of fell face first into IT. Uh, hmm. I I got a job as a contractor for tech systems. Um, and I was working at a at a Fortune fifty. So I mean, it's it was a uh, you know. A complete 180 from what I was doing before. Uh, I started in that training and development space, and then I moved into project coordination and org change, um, and that kind of opened up a whole new world for me. Uh, I, I started uh, working in cloud when cloud was still a new thing. So this is like mm -hmm. 2012. Um, you know, there there was no AWS or anything like that. Uh, this company was building their own private cloud platform. Uh, it was the first time I heard of like platform as a service. It was a, a, a new concept. It was all cutting edge technology back then. Um, and then a, a couple of years later, I started working as a, a scrum master on a uh, on a big data security program. And that's that's kind of when everything changed for me. Um, prior to that, I, I was I would say I was getting by, but I didn't get it. Mm. Uh, 
because uh, I, I didn't have a technical background. So um, from a project management standpoint, I was just your basic taskmaster, you know, uh, this is due on Friday. Did you do it? Yes or no? Check the box type mm-hmm. person. Um, but I just, I didn't really understand a lot of what was actually going on. Um, security was different. I got, I got very lucky. I had a security architect that I worked with that, uh, dumbed things down for me and explained some very basic security concepts mm-hmm. in, uh, ways that I could understand. Um, so I, he used this, uh, pot of gold analogy, uh, you know, so you've got this pot of gold, but you want to keep safe. Um, you know, so you take it inside your house. You don't want anybody to get inside your house. You shut the windows and lock the door. You know, maybe you don't even want anybody to get to the door. So you put up a fence. Uh, when you put up some signs, you know, maybe you, uh, you know, you put up some motion sensors and security mm-hmm. cameras. And, you know, maybe you want to make sure if people get inside the house that they can't find the gold still. So you put it in a safe and you hide it in your basement. You know, stuff like that. It sounds mm-hmm. silly, but those were all like physical security concepts that I could understand. And I was able to one for one those into technical controls. Um, so everything clicked. Uh, the, the, nice. the world, the security world finally made sense to me. And I, and I was kind of hooked from there. Yeah, I, I think there's something of value there when we think about the talent shortage that we have. Again, I have some feelings as to whether that's self-imposed or not, if we're erecting too many gates. But regardless, the fast track to filling the pipeline is, you know, getting down into earlier levels, high school, college, even earlier, and using these analogies so that IT is not always at a remove, right? I think a lot of people, you say cyber, and they're like, well, I don't really know that much about computers. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I would tell a young person in elementary school, if, if you've ever done the forgot your password to get around something that's probably where you can start and you can yeah. build from there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's a lot of basic concepts to, to our day to day. Um, and you're able, if you're willing to kind of go down low enough, you can make those, um, those connections to things that almost everyone, you know, recognizes and knows, and then use that as a foundation to build from there. Well, and, if you have that power to analogize, I think it also helps. We've talked on the podcast several times about being able to translate it to business leaders, right? Like CEOs, Absolutely. growth leaders who are just like, how does this, why am I spending money on this? You know, like, what's the value? And then how does this uh, keep us operationally fit or, you know, no disruption or interruption to service, stuff like that, you know? Yeah, totally agree. And so how do you think this, perspective that you bring, which is through many side doors into cyber, um, has informed your approach to either security engineering or security strategies? You know, I'd say more than anything, it's it's helped me appreciate the need for uh, making security make sense. I'm usually able to have those pretty basic down-to-earth discussions with business leaders and non-technical people and and speak a language that they can understand. Um, When they're frustrated or confused, I I get it because that's been me. I've been Mm -hmm. frustrated and I've been confused. Um, I think it's important to keep perspective that uh, security controls can't create an undue hardship on your organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Policy can't be overly complicated. It can't be difficult to comply with. Uh, processes shouldn't be ambiguous. Um, 
you want to create a security program that supports the business and that it doesn't necessarily mean letting everyone do what they want, but rather that you need to be smart about selecting and implementing, you know, technology solutions that complement and support one another and they integrate well with your infrastructure and your operation. Um, you know, make it easier to be compliant than non-compliant. And it's amazing how quickly, you know, things can kind of turn around. Yeah, I, I will say, though, that I, I've been pretty fortunate when it comes to business partners. Um, the last decade or so I've spent in the, the financial sector, so mostly in investments and insurance. Mm-hmm. Like That's an industry where you can have pretty candid risk-based discussions with business yeah. leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get it every bit as well as you do, because um, that's their entire business. It's what they're selling to their customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so kind of using that as a jumping off point that it's the common language, uh, the fact that they speak a common language with me and vice versa, it's incredibly beneficial. And I, I think that's something that, you know, anyone in the security industry should try to find uh, a common language with their business area counterparts. Um, so they understand what you're doing and why, but you also, you need to understand what they're doing and why that way you can su- support one another. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the successes and failures you've experienced so far. I'm a big believer that the, what would I call it? The American kind of business cultural emphasis on failure as a jumping off point to success is a little misplaced and we'll get into philosophy in a bit here, but I think we both understand that you can also just live with failure in a way that's instructive. Um, so it doesn't have to be necessarily related to to cyber or something, but you know, I get the sense that you have success sort of pivoting in one career. Um, but what are like the big wins for you? And what are the ones that were like, ah, I fell flat on my face, but I learned something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these uh these types of questions always kind of make me wonder, you know, how vulnerable do I really want to get here? Um, so I, I guess I'll, I'll preface this and, and say that, like, as I've gotten older, I've tried to change my perspective on failure and success. Mm-hmm. They're both very subjective um, and they can both be very temporary. You know, uh, you win the Super Bowl, you have your parade, and then a couple of days later, you're back to prepare for the next season. You know, you're, you're yeah. starting an O and O record the same as anybody else. Um, and the same goes for your losses. You, you can get knocked down a lot, uh, but then you get back up. So, you know, f- failure can be very temporary. Um, success can too. Uh, I, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of success uh, in, in projects that I've managed. Uh, I've had, you know, several situations where, you know, I, I was met with seemingly impossible deadlines. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I was able to kind of push things through the finish line, you know, at or ahead of schedule. Uh, I've also had, uh, I've also had some projects that I've managed that have not finished on schedule that, that did not meet all their objectives. And almost universally, it comes down to planning and prep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did, did you understand what you were really trying to accomplish? Did you understand, um, you know, who was going to be there to support you uh, and who wasn't? Um, did, did you, did you have a, uh, you know, universal um, understanding of kind of what the the scope of this really was and what you were going to get out of it. Um, you know, if you don't have those things, you're probably not going to have as much success. Um, you know, at least in the project management space, whether you're talking about a business project or a security project or you know just a general IT project. 
Now, yeah. on a personal level, um, so I, I mean, I dropped out of college when I was 19. Um, and I, like, I felt like a complete failure. Uh, I spent years, you know, watching, you know, all the people around me graduating school, launching their careers, you know, buying nice houses, going on nice vacations, like mm-hmm. living these, these American dream lives that I didn't experience growing up. And as a young adult, I still wasn't experiencing, um, you know, I, I was a college dropout, just making ends meet. Um, and I was absolutely terrified all the time of what would happen if I lost my job. Uh, because I didn't think I was going to be able to get another one. Like I, I was, I was the guy that you see on LinkedIn saying, I applied for 500 jobs and I got two interviews. You know, that, yeah. that was literally me minus the posting about it on social media. Once I got introduced to the security industry and, and I realized that that was something that interested me, it was something that I cared about. It was something that I felt I could succeed in. Uh, I was motivated to make a change. Um, so I, I went back to school when I was 33. I, I had an 18 month at home. Mm. Uh, over, the next, over the next five years, I, I graduated with a cybersecurity degree. Um, I've earned 13 different, you know, IT or project management or security certifications. Uh, I've held four, soon to be five different positions of increasing responsibility across two organizations. Uh, and I've started my own uh, consulting business and I've had two more kids. Um, but all that started from failure. Uh, so, you know, when I say I think it's subjective, you know, philosophically, you can look at it and say, you know, that that failure weighed on me for a long, long time. And it, and it was really heavy. Um, but, you know, carrying that also kind of makes you stronger. Um, you know, and looking back today, the things that I failed at, you know, my my original major was mass communication, you know, and why I chose that. No idea. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. Um, and. You know, I, I didn't know what that career or what that degree was going to do for me. I just, you know, it was almost like I threw a dart at a board. Um, you know, so those those opportunities probably weren't right for me anyway. Um, so I, when I look at it, yeah, I, I, I failed at the things that probably weren't weren't going to pan out for me anyway, but I succeeded at the things that were. Um, so maybe it all kind of worked out the way it was supposed to. We'll be back in a moment. If you like what you hear, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every other week on Tuesdays. Now, back to my conversation with Nick Mullen. So you and I had originally connected over a mutual respect and reading of Stoic philosophy. And I wanted to give you space to elaborate on what that's meant to you and how you may be carrying it through your practice. Yeah. Um, so I love this topic. Uh, I've actually been writing about it a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping to have something out on the uh, on the interwebs by the time this this podcast airs. Um, but let me kind of preface it by saying, like, I, I don't think I'm an expert in stoicism. Uh, I'm interested in it. It resonates with me. Uh, I try and learn and understand a little bit more every day. But uh, I'm very much still in that learning and understanding phase. So kind of a, more of a Padawan than uh than mm-hmm. um but uh probably i guess to to start things out uh for any listeners that aren't kind of tuned in on it uh i'd probably i'd like to give a little bit of a brief overview and 
kind of chime in anywhere where you feel like I'm deviating or I'm off base here, George. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Stoicism's it's a uh, you know it's an ancient philosophy that's still pretty popular today, but it's it's based largely on logic, ethics, and virtue. Um, the Stoics believe that the path to leading and living a good life was kind of found in understanding and accepting ourselves for who we are, um, the world for the way it is, and acting with virtue. Um, so they they kind of saw virtue as uh, this concept of the highest good. Um, and they had four main virtues that they practiced, um, temperance, courage, wisdom, and justice. Um, now, their, their definitions of those words were a little bit different than, you know, the, the yeah. way that we use them today. But, you know, for temperance, they were really just kind of talking about curbing your desires and practicing self-control, you know, not, not indulging in excess, uh, which was interesting because uh, some of the Stoic philosophers were also filthy rich. But um, <laughs> yes. You know, uh, you, you, not everyone practices what they preach, even when you're, uh, you know, idolized 2000 years later, I guess. But, uh, you know, for courage, they, they, they taught to face challenges and misfortune, um, you know, and face it head on, particularly when it benefits your, your fellow man. You know, it's not about eliminating fear or anxiety, but, you know, doing the right things in, you know, in the face of fear and anxiety. Uh, for wisdom, they, they they sought to understand what was good and what wasn't, um, what they could control and what they could influence and what they couldn't. Um, I, I think uh, you know, one of the quotes that uh, I think it may have been Epictetus talks about, you know, the, the difference is recognizing uh, what's good and what's evil and the choices that we make around those things that are within our span of control. That's what's good and what's evil. Um, mm -hmm. We can't control the outside influences, but we can control the way that we react to them. Um, and then justice. Um, so Marcus Aurelius thought this was the most important of all the, the four virtues. And to them, justice was a lot broader than the way we use the term today. You know, it was really just kind of doing doing your duty to your community and to society, um, the morality and how you act. Um, do we give or do we take? Do we inflict yeah. harm on one another? Are we respectful? Are we fair? Um, and, and for me, one of the greatest appeals to the security industry as a whole is that I genuinely believe our work to be a noble cause. Yes. Uh, yep. I, I have never in the last several years questioned whether I'm on the right side of things or not. Um, my work helps protect real people. Uh, it, it keeps valuable and necessary services and infrastructure available. And that that means something to me. Um, to me, that's that's my highest good. Um, and I think it's a, you know, I think we see some people rightfully interested in joining the industry because of levels of high pay. As you've demonstrated, it can completely change someone's trajectory, especially from underrepresented communities. But absolutely. I think once you get in, if there's a solid culture where you're working, I mean, the mission is is noble like you feel you know you're not you, you're not hawking ads you're not doing bill collection <laughs> you're yeah you know you're protecting assets and protecting people's data uh i can't and but it is a lot of it is outside of your control it's why i can't think of a better philosophical school <laughs> for cyber than than stoicism 100 percent. i mean it's um <laughs> you know you, you think about uh a lot of I mean, a lot of this industry is centered around incident response. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's entire, you know, 
there, there's MSSPs out there and that's all they do. Um, you know, and, and then there's, you know, a lot of, you know, software companies out there that help support that. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of the, it's, you know, it's the business you guys are in. Um, yeah. you're, you're, you're helping, you know, alert and detect, uh, and providing that, um, you know, providing that paint of glass into what's going on in your environment. And, you know, as a security practitioner, like the, the question you just have to ask yourself is, are you prepared? Have you identified risk? Have you put plans in place for managing them? And are you comfortable with the fact that there's only so much that you can control and you've done the best you can for what you can influence? You know, that's, that's kind of that, uh, that wisdom, uh, and virtue that comes into play. You, you can't lose sleep over the things that are outside of your control, but I think a lot of people do. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I especially hate that cliche, right? And also, you know, the humans are the weakest link kind of stuff. I mean, you, it's impossible yeah. to control what other people do. Um, there's always a new and emerging threat or set of TTPs, and so you just have to have these like foundational principles. Otherwise, you'll go crazy. It's like you could you could spin on shiny object syndrome every hour. There's something mm -hmm. you could just hypothetical your way into paralysis. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. I sat in on a uh, at a in a conference last year and heard a speaker, um, and he was talking about the you know the the humans being your weakest link, and he flipped that paradigm on its head. You know, and, and kind of showed a it was a, a flow chart of all of the security controls that you have in place before you got to the human. Mm -hmm. And then when the human does something stupid, you're saying it's their fault. The the human was your mm -hmm. last line of defense. And how right. and how and how often do those end users, they're your canary when you know the, the technology that you've spent you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in these services and everything else that you've put in place, all of it failed. Um, but but you're going to try to point the blame at, at the human being that, you know, was probably really busy and didn't pay enough attention and clicked the button that they weren't supposed to. And it's that's challenging. Um, and I, I will I, say, you know, I read a very illuminating interview with a ransomware operator and they were saying, you know, they had their numbers off by a few digits, but they were saying essentially like, look, these giant corporations have billions of dollars in cybersecurity and we'll never be able to compete with that. I don't know, mm -hmm. obviously billions, but they were saying, but we can always win on social engineering. All we have to do is get to the person. And I think that says more about the way the controls are designed and where the dominoes fall than it says about you know the this the industry at large yeah yeah i i would agree and um yeah i i don't think that we necessarily we do enough to educate end users and, and show them real world examples of what's going on we, we we talk a lot within the industry and we have a lot of those kind of siloed discussions uh but we we could always do a better job of of end user education and prioritizing, you know, uh, these training and awareness programs, uh, no matter what organization you're in, you know, making sure that the security awareness training isn't a check the box exercise once a year, uh, making sure that it's, you know, it, it's part of your culture. Yeah. I mean, I remember in a previous job having to do it and you just have two monitors and you let the PowerPoint do its thing. <laughs> so yeah. you can keep working. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. You just let it play through for forty five minutes, and then you get credit for it, and you know your your compliance activity is done for the year. Uh, that that can't be it. You, you have and also, to, and some level of customization too, right? We see increasing customization on the attacker side, right? So if I'm going to do invoice fraud, you know, does your payroll finance team get the same training as like you know your DevOps team, which probably has a higher degree of understanding about what to be where you know they, they are going to get attacked in completely different ways yep. but if you're just giving them the same like phishing simulation training across the board I, I don't know how much safer that's really making you yeah i i would agree um it's a time investment you know uh, how much time do you want to invest in you know education is it are you just pulling uh three or four videos out of somebody's catalog yes, to subscribe yeah. to, or, or are you really trying to make it uh, something that's impactful and meaningful for your organization? Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to round to home here and ask you about the role of remote work in your career development. I know offline, we had been talking about this and let's be very clear. If I were working in an office and you were working <laughs> office, we would never have quote unquote met, right? Yeah. We would not have the discussions that we have on LinkedIn. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be talking with someone who specializes in AI in Norway. Uh, but I, so I just want to understand what your take has been on that. It, so remote work for me has been huge. Uh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I, I worked when I was consulting uh, years ago, I worked remotely a couple days a week. But that was, it was mostly because of uh, workspace capacity uh, in, in the office. It wasn't because that was just a cultural thing. Um, you know, since since 2020, uh, I've been full-time remote at my house. Uh, and I'm, I'm so much more productive working from home than I was in the office. Uh, part of it is just because a big part of my job is facilitation. You know, mm -hmm. the majority of the meetings that I'm in, I'm leading. So instead of me trying to rush from conference room to conference room, waiting for everybody else to arrive, and then trying to drive a meeting, take notes, update documentation, all from my laptop, uh, I'm you know in front of everybody in real time. I'm I'm comfortable at my desk in my office with multiple screens, and I can make it all look easy because comparatively it is. Um, you know, but I do still think there's some things that are better in person. Um, planning goes better in person. I, I think that you get better participation from the whole group when you're in a room together with dedicated time for planning. It's easier to get distracted uh, when you're working from home sometimes. Yeah. Um, brainstorming, problem solving. I, I've had better success with those type of exercises in person. Uh, just again, because you get more participation and I think people stay a little bit more dialed in. Um, it's been good for me to get in the office from time to time. And I, and I do, uh, I'm about a seven hour drive from our home office. So I can get there for a few days when I need to, mm -hmm. but would I want to work full time in the office again? Absolutely not. Um, but to another thing that you kind of discussed, we, like we would never have met if I was full time in the office. Mm -hmm. I, I, I realized here probably about a year ago that, um, one of the downsides of working from home is it, you have to network in a different way. Uh, you're, you're not going to meet all of your yep. coworkers. You know, you're not going to have those, uh, those hallway conversations or, you know, the, the water cooler talks that, 
you know, people have historically had. Uh, you're not going to, you know, probably go to as many in-person networking events, particularly if you work like me hours away from from the home office. So you have to come up with new ways to meet people. Uh, and if, if you want to network and get educated in the industry you're in, uh, probably one of the, at least for me, one of the most successful ways I've been able to do that is through LinkedIn. Uh, you you kind of try to connect with the community and meet people and and learn from them, you know, remotely the same way as, uh, as you're working. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right. Well, Nick Mullen, thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. Yeah, this has been great. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on. That's it for First Watch today. My thanks to Nick Mullen. To hear more interviews with leaders and more spotlight episodes on newcomers, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, share on your socials or leave us a rating. It helps others find the show. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Matias Cefaletti and production help from Jamil Mafi. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.